True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to Episode 35, The Crimes of P. I have no doubt that you're listening to that title wondering why the heck I don't just say the person's name. Well, I can't. And although this crime took place 18 years ago, no one has ever said this offender's real name. The court forbids us from doing so, because P was a child at the time of her crimes. P is a woman and today she is 30 years old. When she became South Africa's youngest convicted murderer, though, she was 12. Under South Africa's child protection laws, an offender or a victim who was a minor at the time of committing a crime or having a crime committed against them has their identity protected. This is not very different from most countries in the world, And it's certainly a justifiable form of protection, especially for victims. We saw this in the Krikwistat murders as well, where although everyone knew who the 16-year-old on trial for the murder of his family and rape of his sister was, Don Steenkamp was only officially named in the media for the first time when he turned 18. P, though, has never been named. And so she continues to remain an enigma, the 12-year-old murderer. I predominantly used court documents from Safley for research on this case and a few media articles. Before I get into today's case, I'd like to thank our new Patreons, Lauren DeLanger, Mark Forrest, Teresa Turk and Louise Tinney. Thank you very much for your contributions to the show on Patreon. I am really grateful. If you'd like to support the show either through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, interacting on social media, and inviting your friends and family to listen all play a huge role in helping the show to continue growing and improving. The case I'm covering today has several interesting narratives behind it. Not only was P very young when she committed her crimes, but the fact that she's female also adds an interesting element to the story. In fact, the story has many parallels with some of the crimes we've seen other infamous female murderers commit. If I told you a 12-year-old girl murdered someone, your first thought would likely be that she must have been protecting herself, right? She must have been the victim of abuse or coercion or something of that nature. Because 12-year-olds don't just wake up one morning, pack away their Barbie dolls, and decide that today is a good day to kill someone. Or do they? Let's get into episode 35, The Crimes of P. 
The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The 11th and 12th years of the life of P were surely the most tumultuous that any child of that age could experience. Her mother and father had divorced, and although the details of the disagreement aren't clear, it seems that P didn't get along with her new stepfather, and as a result, went to live with her grandmother, Radha Govinda. P's father, son to Radha, sadly took his own life when P was 11. So this time was clearly extremely difficult for P and quite likely her entire family. P lived with her grandmother in Pietermaritzburg and seems to have wanted for very little. Rada Govinda, P's grandmother, is described as a successful businesswoman, a millionaire and a socialite and her businesses had made her very wealthy. Having lost her son to suicide, perhaps having P in the house was a comfort to her, a small link to her deceased child. It is believed that Rado was not on good terms with P's mother. I think that this is probably natural, considering that their divorce seemed to have been a catalyst that sent P's father on a downward spiral into depression and eventually suicide. His death, of course, cannot be blamed on anyone, but I think that when someone takes their own life, the type of grief experienced is complex, and early on it may be easier for family members, especially the mother of the deceased, to look for someone else to blame. P would also claim that her grandmother had told her that shortly before her father's death, she'd broken the news to him that the man he knew as his father was actually not really his father. P was not coping well at her grandmother's house, though. Nor was she coping well in general. Although she continued to excel at school, and teachers would later say they had no idea anything was wrong. Her personal and home life was in turmoil. P had started a relationship with a much older boy. Well, in my opinion, he's a man. He was 20. The man has never been named, but the relationship was a sticking point with P's grandmother, as were the huge telephone accounts that started arriving reflecting the hours that P was spending on the phone with this young man. One month, she is alleged to have racked up a 2,000 rand phone bill. P would later claim that her grandmother had made her life a living hell. She said that the woman had constantly criticised her and spoke ill of her mother. P said that on one occasion, when she threatened to leave and go back to live with her mother, her grandmother had threatened to scar her face so that she couldn't leave the house. She would also claim that she'd witnessed her grandmother praying in front of a candle for P's mother to die. Although little mention is made of the child, it is known that P had a younger brother 
who was also staying with her grandmother at the time. Despite P's claims about her grandmother, outsiders would say that they had no idea there were any problems in the home, and that P had expressed on several occasions that she loved her grandmother and preferred living with her to living with her mother. Rada's daughter would later say that P was the apple of Rada's eye, and that the girl was well provided for in Rada's will. Something went wrong in that house, though, despite all of these claims of love and adoration. And on the 14th of September 2002, it all came to a head. Due to the nature of the case, the initial court documents are not uploaded to Safley, so I worked from an appeal document that has significantly less detail. The national media also really only picked up on this case after the arrest of P, because I guess the murder of a 59-year-old woman in an apparent house robbery is not considered news in South Africa. Because of this lack of information about the early days of this crime, we don't really know how the body of Rada Govinda was found, but we do know that when she was found in her bed at her home in Pietermaritzburg, She'd been strangled, and her throat had been slit. It was initially believed that Rada had been strangled to death in her sleep, because there were no signs that she'd struggled against her assailants. The Govender family was understandably devastated. The matriarch of their family had been viciously murdered, and a few items had been stolen from the house. Thankfully, the two children, 12-year-old P and her 6-year-old brother, were safe. The children went back to live with their mother, while Inspector Swami Pillay began his investigation into the brutal killing. Within days, Inspector Pillay made two arrests. Vusi Muzi Shabalala and Sipo Hadebe were two residents of Pietermaritzburg. The men, both in their thirties, had no prior convictions, and it's very likely that they were caught while trying to sell some of the items that had been taken from the governor house. The two men were questioned voraciously by Pillay, and soon they started to tell a bit of a wild tale. They hadn't broken into Rada Govinda's house that night. They'd been let in. In fact, they said, they'd had no intention of committing any crimes on the evening of the 14th of September 2002, until a girl had approached them in the street around 8 o'clock at night. She was crying, they said, and holding a photograph of a man and woman. She said that they were her parents and that they'd both been murdered. She wanted their help in avenging their deaths, she said, and if they would come with her and help her to kill the evil woman who'd caused their deaths, she would let them take whatever they wanted from the house in return. She described the expensive jewellery that the woman owned and said that they could take as much as they wanted. It would be easy, the girl said, because she'd already drugged the woman, so she wouldn't even fight back. To crown off the deal, 
the men said she offered to have sex with them when they were finished. When the men were asked how old this girl was, they said that she looked small, but by the way she spoke and how she acted, they thought she was at least 18. Shabalala and Radebe claimed to have been extremely drunk that night, but they clearly remember being led into Rada Govinda's bedroom by the girl. She'd given them each a kitchen knife and told them to stab the woman to death. Hadebe instead said that he'd put his hands around the throat of the sleeping woman and squeezed until she stopped breathing. A pathologist would later confirm that this had been Rada's cause of death. The girl, though, the men said, was not satisfied that they'd done the job and instructed them to slit Rada's throat while she stood watching. It is believed that Shabalala slits Rada's throat. After they committed the murder, the girl had walked around the house, giving them jewellery, clothing, a video recorder, and a satellite decoder. The men had then left. Shabalala and Hadebe were charged with murder and theft. On the 2nd of October 2002, both men pled guilty to the murder and the theft. Their plea statements revealed the involvement of a young girl to all present in the court that day. News articles would later state that within hours of those plea statements being read out in court, a large group of friends and family of Rada Govinda arrived at P's mother's house. They were baying for her blood. P was allegedly assaulted that night by members of her own family. They wanted the real story out of her. On the 4th of October 2002, 12-year-old P was arrested and appeared in Peter Maritzburg Magistrates Court for the first time. The day before, Shabalala and Hadebe had been sentenced to 25 years each in prison for the murder of her grandmother, and now she was facing the same charge. In sentencing the two men, the judge had said that there was something very wrong with the world if two men with no prior record would go into a house and viciously murder a stranger simply because they were asked to by a young girl. The public suddenly became aware that there was far more to this alleged robbery gone wrong. P was held in police custody for her own safety after the assault by her family members. Her mother agreed that she would be safer there as she worked long hours and would be unable to watch her. P was held in police custody from the 4th of October until her next appearance on the 10th of October. Despite having never indicated that she had been involved in the murder of her grandmother, when she realised that her two hitmen were going to be testifying against her, P admitted her involvement. In her version, though, she was a pawn. P claimed that the boyfriend of her aunt, who was Rada's daughter, had convinced her to arrange the murder. 
She said that she was instructed by the man to put sleeping tablets in her grandmother's tea and then to kill her and make it look like a robbery. The motive, she claimed, was that Rada's daughter would then inherit a lot of money, even more now that her brother had taken his own life, and he would pay P an amount for getting the job done. She said that her grandmother's alleged ill-treatment of her made it easier for her to have her killed. During the trial, the validity of this claim was questioned, and eventually it was found that there was no evidence that anyone had coerced P into arranging the murder. P agreed with the men's version of events that night, except she said that they had chosen to slit Rada's throat themselves and that she hadn't been present when it happened. It did emerge that P had allowed her six-year-old brother to go into their grandmother's bedroom after she'd been murdered. It also emerged that immediately after the murder and as soon as the men left the house, P phoned her 20-year-old boyfriend. The details of that conversation are unfortunately not known to us, but it has been described as an attempt to arrange an alibi. In South Africa at the time of this case, children under the age of 10 were considered to not have criminal capacity, which means that if they commit a crime, they cannot be prosecuted. That law also stated that the state has to consider the capacity of a child up to the age of 14, as of course everyone matures at a different rate, and the capacity of one 10-year-old may be the same as another 14-year-old. So in 2002, if you were younger than 10, you automatically were not criminally responsible. But if you were between the ages of 10 and 14, you had to prove that you were not criminally responsible. P's criminal capacity therefore had to be considered before prosecuting her as she fell within that age range. The girl's high level of maturity and the fact that she was often mistaken for an 18-year-old by many people essentially played against her, and the courts determined that she was indeed capable of being held criminally responsible. The law that governs the minimum age of criminal capacity has actually just been changed. And considering this case, I find the change a little worrying. On the 5th of June this year, President Cyril Ramaphosa signed an amendment to the Child Justice Act, which now deems all offenders under the age of 12 to automatically not be responsible for criminal actions. The age group for consideration is still up to the age of 14. Now, I understand that this case is a flash in the pan. 12-year-olds don't just go around arranging hits on their grandmothers every day, but it does open the door for adult criminals to use children in their crimes. I used to work with someone who was involved in helping kids living in areas with high gang activity to stay away from gangs and keep themselves busy with sports and other healthy interests. The reason that this person set up this program 
was because they were seeing a disturbing trend of children as young as seven being initiated into gangs and turned into hitmen. That's right. They would give these kids guns, teach them how to shoot, and then send them after their rivals. Why? Because if they were caught, they couldn't be prosecuted. Now, clearly that is absolutely sick, and hopefully not a long-term trend, but I think it's strange that as our society is producing more tech-savvy and generally mature kids at a younger age, we're now giving them less responsibility for their actions as they get older. As P's case will show, even when children are held criminally responsible, the sentences they get are questionable at best. I realise that putting a child in prison is not ideal, and the chances of them being rehabilitated there versus being made worse there are heavily weighted to the latter. But it doesn't sit well with me that someone can do something like this and not have any state-mandated form of treatment. Two years after the crime was committed, P was found guilty of the murder of her grandmother. In being sentenced, she took the title of South Africa's youngest murderer away from Marlene Lenberg, who was convicted at 19. On the day that P was found guilty, she left the court and went and wrote her grade 9 exams. A convicted murderer who handed a man a knife and told him to slit her grandmother's throat and then watched as he did walked out of the courtroom holding her mommy's hand and went and sat next to your child and wrote an exam. And she did very well, by the way. She passed with flying colours. Everyone has the right to education, I suppose. Interestingly, P only preceded one of the next youngest female murderers by two years. Marcel Stein of the Krugersdorp killer's case was only 14 when she plunged a knife into Michaela Valentine. She also did very well at school. So, considering these two cases, maybe it's not the kids living in poorer areas that we need to watch out for. Maybe it's the teenage girl in the nice house on the corner. The one with the excellent grades and the family that loves her. Perhaps it's the Peas and the Marcells that we should really be worried about. P's initial sentence, passed down by Judge Swain in the High Court of Peter Maritzburg, was non-custodial, meaning that she was not at risk of ever seeing the inside of a prison cell. She was given a sentence of 36 months correctional supervision, during which she would essentially be on house arrest. She would be required to attend school, to attend therapy sessions, she would be under supervised probation, and she had to perform community service. She was to live with her mother in her flat, and she was essentially only allowed to leave the house 
for school and school-related activities. She was only allowed a specific number of visits per month from certain people, and could also only take a limited number of phone calls, also only from approved people. Within months of P's release, the prosecutor started receiving reports that the girl was not complying with the requirements of her house arrest. The state appealed to the Court of Appeals for reconsideration of the sentence. In December 2005, P's sentence was reviewed, and in addition to the 36 months house arrest, she was also given a seven-year sentence of imprisonment, which was suspended for five years. This meant that if she was found guilty of any other violent crimes within the next five years, she would automatically have to serve seven years in jail for killing her grandmother. I personally think that the sentence should have hung over her head for a far longer time, but such as it was, from 2009, P had neither a suspended sentence nor house arrest to worry about anymore. The two men she pulled off the street and conned would sit in jail on life sentences, although even they have probably already been considered for parole. Rada's children and those who loved her were extremely unhappy with the sentence. They feel like P got away scot-free, and they will never get their mother back. They cut off all contact with P, her mother and her brother, and I can only hope that P received no inheritance from her grandmother's substantial estate. In 2011, P was in the newspapers again, as she was 21 years old and expecting her first child. She was living with her partner and close to full term when she was interviewed by a KZN newspaper. She said, quote, I've paid for what I've done. I know deep in my heart that I've done my best to pay for my wrongdoing. All I want is for people to leave me to live my own life. End quote. She also said, quote, I've tried to put it behind me. I was young and I'm a lot more mature now. I deserved a second chance like everyone else. At the end of it all, my child must not be haunted by what I have done. The baby deserves a fair chance in life. End quote. While I fully agree with her that her baby should not in any way be impacted by what she's done, that child is going to grow up one day and find out what happened. And as much as P would like to think that she can just shut the door on what she refers to as that episode in my life, the truth is that she can't. She cannot go back to being the person that she was before she committed that crime. It's not fair to the victim to say, okay, we're just going to pretend that that didn't happen and I'll let you carry on with your life. I've covered a few cases on this podcast where the offender has served their time and been released. And in at least one of those cases, I've been asked outright if I don't think it's a bit unfair to bring up the past again. Surely they deserve a second chance. 
And my answer is, and always will be, no, it's not unfair in my opinion. I'm not denying anyone their second chance. But a second chance doesn't mean you get a new attempt at your previous life. A second chance means that you now live in a world that you created by killing or raping someone. A second chance doesn't mean that no one is ever going to remind you of your crime again, because that would mean that your victim is forgotten. And if you're truly remorseful, then surely you don't want that. So yes, P, and every other offender I have and will talk about, you do get a second chance. But that doesn't mean that you're allowed to forget that you took away someone else's. My talking about your victim doesn't change the fact that you still get to live your life, and they don't. So the arrogance of any offender that says, that part of my life is over, please stop talking about it, is astounding. Even if you never commit another crime, you still have to live in the world you created, because that's the price you pay for taking someone's life. And I don't care if you're 12 or 112. This may sound like I don't have any empathy for offenders and the sometimes extremely difficult paths that lead to their crimes. And that's not true. I actually have a huge amount of empathy for the horrific things that sometimes happen to many of these people. But that's not the conversation here. And my empathy is for your past self, the person you were before you made the choice you did. After that, my empathy is only for your victim. If P had killed someone in self-defense after years of proven abuse or assault, this would be a very different story. P was not abused and she was not pushed to the edge. Even if her grandmother was a strict authoritarian and was really critical of her, and even if she was mean at times, she had many other options. She wasn't being held captive. The phone call that she made directly after her grandmother's murder bugs me. She phoned her much older boyfriend. Why did she do that? Was that what this was all about? Was she trying to ensure that she wasn't kept from seeing this young man? It certainly wouldn't be the first time that a young girl becomes complicit in killing her caregivers when they try to stop her from seeing a man she believes she is madly in love with. I guess we'll never know. But we do know that there was absolutely no good reason for what she did. Rada Govinda was 59 years old. She was successful and had worked hard to build a life for herself and her family. She had just suffered the worst loss a mother ever has to endure when her son took his own life. And she was struggling her way through grief to come to terms with that. I am sure she wasn't perfect and that she made mistakes too but none of them should have cost her her life. 
her granddaughter chose to live with her, and I'm sure that must have been of some comfort to her at the time. Little did she know that when she let 12-year-old P into her house, she was inviting a killer in. Thank you for listening to episode 35, The Crimes of P. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app that you're using to listen right now. Before I go, I'd like to introduce you to a true crime podcast that I enjoy called Crime Labs. The show is insightful and detailed coverage of international true crime stories. Here's host Eileen with her promo. They murdered her. A vile and disgraceful act. We were able to discover the remains of two humans. Welcome to Crime Lapse. I am Eileen. And I'm Charlie. Crime Lapse is a true crime podcast that uses primary audio, in-depth research and emotive narration to give you an immersive insight into the darkest tales and most horrifying crimes. Find Crime Lapse wherever you listen to podcasts and at Crime Lapse Podcast or at Crime Lapse Pod on social media. Everyone has a story to tell, so why not let us tell you some? I'll leave a link to the Crime Lapse Podcast in the show notes. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a mini-sode. Until then... Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.